This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Thank you to everyone that has tuned in thus far. What a year everyone has had, and I can't believe today is the last episode of 52 Weeks of Hustle. I've had such a great time sitting down with industry leaders. Thank you to the leaders and for all the listeners and your continued support. Many people have asked, but as we all know, the grind and hustle never stops. So we will be back for season two of 52 Weeks of Hustle. In addition, thank you for everyone that has supported the book, Hustle Your Way to Success in Sports Sales, a playbook to be an elite in the sports business industry. It's available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audio versions. Be sure to check out 52weeksofhustle.com. Enjoy the last episode of season one. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, or for those individuals that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career growth, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week. In the sports business, the elite professionals are always being innovative and proactive and really thinking about the state of the business six to 12 months in advance. Our next guest has had a whole career of being successful in multiple stops and is now really focusing on the future as she is getting ready for the Olympic Games in 2028. I'm excited to have Ann Rodriguez, Chief Strategy Officer at LA28. Ann, welcome to the show. Hey, Travis. Great to be here. And it's uh, crazy to believe in 52 Weeks of Hustle, we are at episode 52, and I couldn't think of a better guest. You know, throughout the guest here for the first year of 52 Weeks of Hustle, we've talked a lot about the grind and hustling every single day and certainly every single week, 52 weeks a year. And again, this is going to be an exciting conversation because you're going to talk about the hustling for an event that's not even for seven years from now, and you're still hustling every 52 weeks. So thanks again, and I'm really excited to, to dive into your illustrious career. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm just doing the math as, I'm, as you're talking, and I think we've got about 400 weeks to work with. So 400 was the hu- hustling of 400, to 400 weeks. So, yeah. well, let's start where we kicked it off. You know, over the last year, you've been with LA28, and you're responsible for leading strategic planning across the commercial business for the Olympic Games. What does a day-to-day look like for you? Well, there's no typical day, I can tell you that. I'm sure everybody in the industry tells you that, but... um. You know, there's a typical day. Um, as chief strategy officer, I really do two things. One is focus on our long-term planning, so our annual operating plan, and that how how that connects to our long-term strategic vision and, and financial objectives, et cetera. 
So there's that. And then there's specific strategic projects that we're doing because we're standing up so many different parts of the organization. So um, there's just a lot to do in terms of building our operation. Um, we're hiring a lot of folks. Uh, we're doing a lot of financial planning and we're working on our games plan. We're developing our commercial program. So I'm really interfacing in a lot of areas, both in the operations and on the commercial side, uh, which I really like. So um, a lot going on, no typical days, but all good days. No, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, a perfect segue in the next question is like, certainly myself, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, when we think of Olympic Games, you just think there's a ton of moving pieces, you know, and a lot of our guests as far as maybe it's one property or, or one or two properties that they're, they're selling or focusing on. And there's just so much opportunity with the Olympic Games. And so how are you and specifically the organization prioritizing some of the tasks and responsibilities that go along with it? And certainly understanding that some of them are, are more prevalent to get done now, you know, that you're still 400 weeks away. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the LA 28 games are a lot different than other Olympic games, um, just because at our inception, it was just so different. So we had bid um, alongside Paris for 2024. Paris got awarded the 24 games and then we got the 28 games. So we've had a group uh, working as a bid committee and really getting ready to stand up the organizing committee for the Olympic Games and OCOG. That's what we are. Um, there's a lot of acronyms in this business. So <laughs> Travis, jump in if I if I say yeah. something you don't understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so so we um, so our, kind of from the jump, we've been different. Um, we're building a, a different commercial program than other games. You know, we're not sort of state sponsored. We're building a commercial engine that's going to fund our operation for the games. So, um, you know, our group has been working on designing the organization, designing the commercial model. And now we're really sequencing things on the operational side that we need to stand up over time. Um, so we're observing, of course, very uh, closely what Tokyo is doing, what Paris is doing. Um, the International Olympic Committee is very helpful in their, um, you know, sort of they have a group who has a remit that tells us what the sort of master calendar is and helps us think through the strategic milestones. So, you know, look, we're we're pulling from everywhere. We're learning from everyone. We're working with a ton of, of stakeholders kind of across L.A. and across the industry. And um, the next seven and a half years for us, it's just about delivering an amazing experience for athletes, the fans, the community, and and all our commercial partners and vendor partners. So we got we got a lot to do, but it's a, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, no, certainly exciting time. And you mentioned earlier, you know, you're certainly hiring a lot of people. And and so as you look at the the current makeup of LA28, what's that staff look like today? And and what does the next few years look like as you start ramping up? Well, today we're around 100 people. Uh, so by the time the Olympic and Paralympic Games arrive in L.A. in 28, we're probably going to have about 6,000 people. So that ramp is, is really steep. Um, yeah. You know, in the next couple of years, we're really getting organized and sort of bringing in the leadership and getting the right people in the right places to then expand out the organization. So um, I definitely expect sort of a, lot, a hockey stick growth after Paris, after we do the handover ceremony in August of 24. Then we really steeply um, accelerate to get ready to produce the games. So it's uh, it's just tremendous to think of how much we'll grow yeah. in such a short time. Um, so you know, comparatively, we do building something sort of similar to the NBA, but in seven and a half years compared to the eighty plus years they've had. And, and you know, going from a hundred to six thousand people is is quite the steep uh, you know, increase. And and I'll kick it to you for, for some advice for the listeners, whether it's you know down the road, whether it's you know people in college looking to get in this business or, or people that are in this business that may want to make that transition to the Olympics. Like, what are some of the key characteristics, no matter what role you're looking for, you know that you're going to be you and your team are going to be looking for as you staff up. 
Well, commitment to our mission and to the, you know, the community in LA and the athletes who are going to compete. I mean, I think that is the unifying thread that we're all just, you know, inspired by the, the mission of the Olympic Games and bringing the best games ever to Los Angeles. So that's absolutely important. Um, there's a, this is a place where there's a lot of collaboration and a lot of interlocking, you know, interlocking pieces. So certainly that team spirit. Um, and commitment to being a good partner internally and externally. Um, that's really important to us too. Um, I'd say, you know, for young folks who are watching the organization develop, um, we'll certainly be posting roles on the website. And, and, you know, you can follow us on LinkedIn where we post a lot of positions. So that absolutely is a great way to stay informed. And look, um, NBC is going to do a great job with the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games this summer in Tokyo. I mean, consuming the media, having a view on the production and the experience and everything else, um, it just helps you get smarter about the Olympic movement and bring more insights to the organization and the event that you're with us. So, No, absolutely. And, you know, Anne, I know you and several of the team members are in New York City. You're probably spread across the, the country right now, but the, the transition to, end, to, to LA will certainly come over the next several years. So, over the last year, there certainly hasn't been much travel allowed. So how has it been working with team members, you know, in different time zones and just all through the video conferencing? Yeah, I mean, look, the pandemic has certainly affected all of us personally and professionally. And, you know, we've all been reacting to to things like pets or kids sort of running this into <laughs> Zoom calls and things, things that we probably didn't experience in the office. So, you know, we're all juggling that. But, you know, before before COVID, we were already working across the time zones. We already had different offices. Um, we work not only across time zones in the U.S., but also in Europe with IOC. So, you know, we had... Um, kind of a good way of working before this hit in terms of like optimizing when we collaborate between the East Coast and West Coast or with Europe, you know, working through the times of days. I think I think the learning for all of us, you know, especially at the executive level is um, our tech skills have vastly improved. Yep, so absolutely. It's been a good challenge to all of us. And, um, you know, I guess I'm just amazed what we've accomplished in the last year. I'm just awed by the resiliency of our organization, um, of the athletes. You know, we work hand in hand with U.S. Olympic and Paralympic right. Committee and just inspired by their ability to take um, a very big curveball and prepare and bring that, you know, really bring that hustle again. People yep. who had to reboot their training and, and prep for Tokyo. So, um, you know, we're ready. We're ready to see each other again. But at the same time, um, we just have a huge sense of gratitude and accomplishment, not, not only for our health, but also for um, what's to come. And it's just it's it's still continuous crazy to think, you know, that we are to your point, seven years or 400 weeks away. And, you know, a lot of our guests, it might be, hey, we know we're three months away from opening night or from first pitch. And it's like, oh, to be here before you know it. I'm sure you and the team have the same feeling at times. It's like, yes, it is seven years away, but there's a lot to accomplish and it's going to be here before you know it. Yeah, yeah, it's coming in hot. I think, um, you know, every day we're doing a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, it is really helpful that there's an Olympic Games every two years. Um, yep. because, you know, we have the opportunity to attend sessions led by the IOC and, you know, we, we have a lot of collaboration with them over the course of the year. So, um, you know, we have, we have rallying points, um, in this, in the schedule. And additionally, um, those rallying points just give us an opportunity to reflect on how far we're coming. I think the hard thing from a management standpoint, you know, is like, what's a win in 2021? Like, how do you make the team feel like a win, right? Like when you and I are running sales, right. like, 
you know, you can celebrate those wins and create that energy, right? Yeah. And then you get that positive. There's a lot more tangible wins that can happen yeah. when you're when you're at the, the, the side of it right now. Yeah, yeah, and people get fired up. And so it's like, what are our things that we're going to get fired up about and celebrate um, to keep that positive energy and momentum when, when sort of the end point is so far away? And uh, we have a good team of folks um, who are skilled at doing that and, uh, you know, sort of a net positive collaborative group anyway. So um, so we're we're enjoying the journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, we always talk about in this business, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You, you do have to enjoy the journey. You guys certainly are doing it. And so to that point, you know, what has been the most memorable part of working for the future games at this point? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I really am, you know, and in, in, in all sort of have a lot of admiration for the way the athletes of the world have managed through the postponement of Tokyo and sort of their resilience and energy to come back in 21. Um, I think that's been really cool. Um, you know, I, when I touched down in LA and went to the office there to start, you know, I've been consulting with the organization before and I've been out there before, but when I walked in and um, we had this really cool room that kind of shows the rendering of the games plan. And it's like this really neat experiential thing. When I walked in there and really um, experienced the vision kind of on premise, like that's super cool. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah. You're like, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very cool. Well, you know, now, Ann, now prior to working with LA28, you were doing, to your point, some freelancing work, and the Olympics were one of those organizations. You also had a big project with Tepper Sports and Entertainment, which is the ownership group of the Carolina Panthers, and now the, the brand-new Charlotte MLS expansion franchise. So we'll certainly get into your history in the soccer and MLS, but that was a big project for you. So how was that experience, you know, bringing in, uh, you know, another MLS franchise? Oh, man. I mean, it's been so fun. I know we'll talk about this, but I've been on a journey with that league over the last, you know, 15 years or so. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and then, boy, the explosion in popularity of the sport, at least in, in the States, has been really neat. So, um, <clears throat> look, it was uh, really cool to be a, a part of the Panthers organization. Uh, you know, they were going through a lot of transition. You know, they made the change with Coach Rivera. And, you know, Mr. Tepper, I bought the team just, I think, maybe even 12 to 14 months before I started coming down there. And I had known Tom Glick for a while, who's yep. running the group and um, from his days at um, city football group. Yep. So, um, so it was like a total known entity in the sense that I know NFL and MLS, you know, given the work I did for Mr. Blank and that organization, but it's cool to really think about how that fits within the culture of the Carolinas. And it is the Carolinas, you know, North and South, not just, sort of one town in North Carolina. And so just thinking about the geography differently and how people experience the sport of soccer differently was really cool. And then working with Tom and the team around, um, you know, what is it about what's working about the Panthers organization with, you know, Dave Tepper's vision for where we could go, what's the vision for the building and how, how could the building, you know, be a wonderful host of both soccer and football, you know, what changes would we have to make? And like, how do, how do we take this sport and this awesome experience and then make it unique, you know, to our internal culture and our external culture? And that was, that's a really fun part of projects like that. And what an awesome experience to, to come back and, and ultimately get a win too, right? They, they were awarded the franchise, yeah. which all, you know, hard work and certainly Tepper Sports and Entertainment, all their hard work and effort certainly paid off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Steve Ardris and um, and Dave and Tom and the whole band really put in a lot of work. Christy, the CFO. I mean, we it was quite a you know they they were driving far ahead, but you know I came in more with some of the operational know-how, and uh, it was really neat to see them get it and to think about the right future um, that the sport will, will really have. And uh, 
I know Labu and the guys down there are on the on the sales team are driving ahead with deposits and everything now. So uh can't wait to to see what a game looks like in their building. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, you know, and to your you know, to your end in your career, many people in this business have certainly thought about starting their own business consultancy or and what would you say, you know, as as you did that and ultimately got a you know, a couple big projects, not only with Tepper Sports and Entertainment, but also ultimately with the Olympics, which, which proved that next job, like what were you, what would you say were some of the great opportunities that it presented and and certainly what were some of the challenges in the, the freelancing end and consulting end? Well, there were a ton of opportunities because my background is in strategy and general management, like that really opened the door to a lot of executive conversation. Um, so I think like the great, the great bit was if you just want to talk to people about your idea of, advising on strategy and growth and like where where you know where are the new revenue opportunities and things like that like it was it was like fairly straightforward to get a meeting and like you and I have been in the business of getting meetings yep, <laughs> right it was like actually pretty pretty straightforward in the sense you know I never went out with like a hard sell because um you know I had been thinking about this idea before I could even do it Kathy had called me Kathy Carter had called me about what she was working on at USOP and LA 28 so um so it certainly helped to have you know the largest sporting event in the world as your first client. So yeah. <laughs> so that was like a big door opener and then yeah. um you know I just I tried to be really selective in terms of who I reached out to and I knew Tom, like Tom was pursuing a project that I felt like I could add a lot of value quickly having worked for an NFL owner who bought an MLS team and and right. having you know he and I have in common DNA you know him being in the league before and stuff. So um so I think those are the great opportunities. The, the challenges are a couple. I mean, one is the long-term business development, you know, because I was doing things that are essentially project-based. It's like at some point those projects will end. And, you know, with LA 28, it was like, why don't you just come do that in, in house? And I was like, right. Okay. You know, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the business development, everybody I talked to, cause you know, I'd gone out, I probably talked to about 70 people and inf- informationally, um, <laughs> like you, I have my calendar in my hustle. So I probably yep. talked to, I probably talked about 70 people to get ideas and network and all of that. And the people who were doing things on their own were like, listen, the business development is a grind. And look, you do the back end, you do your taxes quarterly, you do your expenses and all that stuff and your travel. And I was used to having, you know, someone booking that for me at the W and down in Atlanta. So, you know, it was, you're doing the accounting and a lot the of independence too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get the flexibility, but it, you know, it's on you if you got to change your schedule and move things around. So right. just got to build that into your time. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun and Hey, one day maybe I'll do it again. But the opportunity with LA was just so interesting. Um, that I just wanted to jump in. Yeah, and I'm sure such a great learning experience and great opportunity. And, you know, you've certainly, as as we've talked, you've had plenty of experience in the MLS. You know, first you were the vice president of sales and marketing with the San Jose Earthquakes for a few years. You're also the vice president of business operations for Atlanta United FC franchise, which you've talked about with Mr. Blank and, and bringing in from the Atlanta Falcons. And, you know, then you had a six and a half year gap in between those two franchises that we'll dive into. But, you, you know, then how did you continue to see the MLS continue to evolve since when you left Atlanta to then obviously working with the Charlotte franchise. Um, what, what was that? How did the MLS continue to evolve in your opinion? Well, look, they've done a, a great job and congrats to Don Garber and the rest of the group over there at MLS in terms of um, getting really good local ownership groups um, to invest in the, in the team and um, really shifting the commitment from the um, on venues from 
um, models that were kind of less successful in terms of like being out in the suburbs and like having used soccer pitches around it and et cetera. And you can only imagine how hard some of the ticket sales conversations were. It's like buy a season right. ticket to drive 45 minutes from the city center to yeah, sit here at this close. place where kids are playing soccer, right? And so sort of repositioning the venues as sort of urban downtown venues and then repositioning the, um, League from a marketing standpoint against um, a younger multicultural sort of millennial and Gen Z audience and making it easy for those folks to engage, not only just in venue, sort of in city centers, but also, you know, really upping their investment in digital and social engagement. And I think, you know, by getting in the right owners and investors to help realize that vision, that's how it's all worked together to really grow the sport. Now, the demographic shift in America um, certainly has been helping. You know, there's a lot of people who who are in this country whose soccer is their first sport, their first love. They're very passionate about a club at home, and it's it's all opportunity for MLS. There's very few people in that in that segment who are not open to MLS. Um, you know, call, you know, soccer purists, and they kind of hate right. in the league or whatever. But that's actually not a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are like. Yeah, I have my my team in Mexico where I'm from, and that's my team. But here, you know, I just I need a out, team here. Yeah, I go to Austin FC, and and you know, or I go to Atlanta, and it's a lot of fun. So, um, you know, they kind of they kind of have hit that that bullseye really really well. Yeah, well, and you know, and we're certainly continuing to dive into your career, but where you really made a, a probably a huge name for yourself was in Atlanta. And you know, while you're in Atlanta, you and your team put yourself on the map. And certainly in the record books, you held the record for MLS for over 35,000 season tickets sold, an average attendance over 46,000 fans per match, and number one in social engagement. So as you were building that team out, what stands out that just helped make everyone and ultimately the team so successful? Yeah, gosh, I mean, there were so many ingredients that came together here. And, um, you know, I should say, like, so contextualizing our accomplishments in MLS is one thing. When you think of MLS that we sold over 35,000 season tickets, we outdrew every single NBA team in just season tickets, almost yep. two times. Every right, NBA almost two X. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. In our first year. And um, the other thing that's insane is that Atlanta is actually one of the top 20 drawing clubs in the world. And, and it's a function of venue capacity because yeah. European clubs, they're huge, but the venues don't have, you know, they can't flex up to 71,000 seats like Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And I'll <laughs> throw in there, you know, my first job out of college was with the Atlanta Hawks and the Thrashers. Thrashers aren't even there. Like Atlanta arguably is one of the hardest markets to sell at. So not only is it, is it you know, being able to sell at that capacity and, and be in the top 20, but in a really tough market. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's everybody, every meeting we had when I started, everybody's like, oh, God, MLS, this is going to be so tough, this is the worst sports market, yep. and we were like, we just didn't accept that, because we right. felt like, number one, we thought about ourselves as an entertainment property, and like, you know, a gathering place for a community, right, and when you take it from that approach, we're like, Man, Atlanta loves a party. There's festivals every weekend. There's always people on the belt line. There's always people sitting outdoors at all these restaurants and patios and whatnot. And we're, we're like, this place is fun. Like, we can't we just be part of the fun, right? And like, how could we connect to the things that are already going on in the community and then invite those people in to be a part of a soccer game, right? Yep. And so, you know, trying really studying the culture there and finding a way to be culturally relevant and to sort of create a value proposition um, to to the sports fans of Atlanta. I mean, the thing that's crazy about Atlanta is how many sports fans are there. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. 
right? It's just the problem for the local Atlanta teams is a lot of those sports fans come from other cities. Atlanta is like a huge Very city transient market. So we were like, this is where the lack of fandom of MLS is going to work to our advantage because it's really hard for Don Roback and the sales guys at the Atlanta, you know, guys and gals at the, at the Falcons when you're talking to someone who grew up a Green Bay fan. Right. And you're trying to sell them a season ticket to the Atlanta Falcons, right? They're like, I'll come when Green Bay comes. Like, yeah, I'll come when, they, when my team comes in town. Yeah, yeah. But, like, a lot of people are like, eh, I don't really have an MLS team. And then they're like, maybe I should just go to this game and see what it's like. Right, and then, and then you know, they adopted Atlanta United was their Atlanta thing, right? And then they kept all their affinities in other sports. So it really opened a lane for us. So yep. I guess, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit more. I guess, like, in some, like, finding that product market fit in that market was um, a big key to our success. And then um, a thing just about our organization, I mean, we we hired people who wanted to win. Do you want to be the best, right? Like that is part of the interview. And, you know, because we're not here to like be kind of good for soccer and like- and don't come up with excuses, just get yeah. the job done. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'm not here to be pretty good for a girl. And yep. like, you know, like we're all here to be the best and we yep. have the potential to be the best because we have such fantastic ownership, such a fantastic venue plan, such a fantastic market. Like there are so many ways to succeed. Uh, let's look, let's look for the ways to succeed, not the ways to fail. And so kind of having that sort of overarching sort of winning attitude, um, you know, really put us on path to like then develop strategies to then execute and then become the best. No, absolutely. And, you know, and while you were in Atlanta, you oversaw ticket sales, marketing events, digital and social media, broadcast, sponsorship, communications, and community relations. So certainly a lot of moving pieces and ultimately a lot of different personalities. So what is your advice for listeners in regards to just managing people in, in all those different verticals? Yeah, yeah. And I should say Atlanta, A&B Sports and Entertainment is a matrix organization. So like I had shared responsibility on tickets with Don Rovac. Um, yep. I had shared responsibility on sponsorship with Tim Zalowski. Um, you know, comms worked with Brett Jukes and his team, but then we had dedicated people. So I think um, when you're a leader in that environment, sitting down with your peer group and saying, okay, what do I do? What do you do? What works? What doesn't work? What do our people do? Do we have the same expectation of what our people do? Because that's where you get into trouble, right? right. Especially not at the, top, at the top to top. It's yep. like when it cascades down the organization. And so, and like, how, how are we going to resolve conflict? Because it's like, I'm pretty sure like Mr. Blank doesn't want us rolling up in his office with <laughs> right. some, some silly dispute on like a sponsor. To settle this small dispute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, how can we, find opportunities to just get in a room. Um, and I'll tell you one of the smartest things we did because it really was a, not even an evolution. It was a revolution for that organization because we had been tenants at the Georgia Dome with the Falcons and then we were taking over management of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We were building the building. Um, we bought a soccer team. We had a NFL team going a Super Bowl run. I mean, we just hit all the buttons at once. Yeah, and so, everything's going on. So I think us all being jointly humbled by the enormity of the challenge was great because we all we all would go into a meeting knowing I need this other person for me to succeed and he or she needs me for them to succeed. So we said we said like we had that sort of team. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Because the challenge was so big. Um, And the other thing we did is that we actually co-located almost everyone we could like down at the dome. We had a temporary space at the Georgia World Congress Center while while we took the dome down and built Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But like being in the same place as much as we could and creating an environment where it wasn't let's email each other 50 times. It was Hey, swing by my desk. I mean, I, I talked to Tim Zalowski more in the kitchen while we were making our lunch. Like we resolved <laughs> things so quickly. Just because quick could, and easy. Yeah, pop in. Hey, what's going on? What can we do? All right. Like, I got it. Like, let's go. Let's go. Let's solve it right now. So I think, um, hey, look, matrix organizations are challenging. You know this. You've been in them too. But I think that. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff. And it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcast. You know, if you go in with the, the right intent and, and the right communication, you can totally make it happen and make great things happen. Again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Ann Rodriguez, Chief Strategy Officer at LA28. So, Ann, so in between your time on the team side, you end up spending five and a half years with Under Armour as the Director of Global Brand Marketing for Soccer and Lacrosse. How was it being on the brand side of the business? Well, um, really fun and really different. Um, you know, at Under Armour, you really are in the retail business, right? Who happens to have sports sponsorships and things like that. So executing in retail, understanding the distribution. I mean, there's just a lot of complexity um, at a Nike, Under Armour, you know, Adidas, Puma, you name it. Um, it's really different. Um, being a public company certainly is a lot different. I think um, when you're on the team side, you're sort of a public entity and you're like a quasi-public figure. But it's not like having um, shareholders and earnings right. calls and SEC rules and yeah, a lot of know. rules and regulations <laughs> that go into that. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. You actually really have to be careful because, um, you know, it's one thing to leak a trade or something when you're on the team side. It's, you know, you could go to jail for <laughs> yeah, information yeah. And the, yep. on the business side. So um, I thought it was really good for me developmentally. Like at that point in my career, it was like early 30s. Um, you know, maybe I was 30 when I started there. And it was really good to like um, have to engage in that level of professionalism and understand just beyond like a really structured quarterly cadence. Yep. Um, I think that was really great. And then, 
you know, I think the tar, the hard thing about it is that you get a lot of pressure from the street to deliver on earnings. And so sometimes you're making, you're making decisions to drive top line growth versus investments to, to deliver on long term strategy. And that's where a lot of people find it hard. Um, so, and, and, uh, I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later. So I'll stop there. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And I think that the next question, I think, probably leads right into what you're going to say is you think about some of that marketing strategy and consumer focus. What were some of the similarities that that you saw from selling tickets to ultimately selling brand and apparel and, and that value proposition? Yeah, I mean, look, you got to go out and you got to get out and you know have a great product and tell a great story, and and then you got to execute on the back end, right? And so um, it's no different whether you know you're selling sneakers and t-shirts or selling tickets. You you know you got to get out and engage that way. You got to know who your consumer is. You got to know why you're relevant and meaningful to them. How you're delivering value there. So all those things are are really similar. Um, a learning I'd say I would apply from that is. Um, Boy, when you're in a big retail operation, like we were manufacturing on four continents and like just to make a T-shirt is a 153 step process that's documented wow. and it has hundreds of people participating in it. Ton of detail. Ton of detail. But when you bring that process and preparation to sport, right, and you and I have probably been in organizations that have not had codified processes that everybody sort of adopts across the organization. When you bring that mindset, you know, so much of your success is in preparation that um, if people understand step-by-step how to get to the goal, you know, it just kind of takes a lot of debate off the table and just helps, helps your team, you know, kind of get to a level of focus that, um, you know, zero distractions, total focus, like get it done. Yep. No, absolutely. You know, going back to kind of the team side in the MLS, you know, after a very successful run with the Atlanta United FC, you joined, you know, the, the WNBA as the senior vice president and chief operating officer. And we've certainly had several guests from the, the league office here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. And, and one of the questions I always ask them, and I want to ask you as well, is as you're traveling around and you're meeting with owners of teams, C-level executives of teams, top industry professionals, what were some of the common characteristics you saw in some of those successful people? Oh, well, I mean, look, uh, I can't say enough, uh, enough nice things about the people I met through the NBA and within the league office. Um, I mean, it's just just a fantastic group of people in the NBA family. Um, I think uh, communication was a big thing. I mean, people really tried um, to manage relationships well through great com- communication. And I, that that's certainly a thing. I mean, Obviously, there's hustle and teamwork. Um, there's a lot of focus. Um, I think a thing that is really hard when you're in a league office is prioritization because there's so many stakeholders and so much inbound that it's hard to stick to your plan because, oh, okay. you know, the scoreboard's leaking in Washington. <laughs> like the yeah. court's wet, you know. Here so we go. Yeah, here we go. I'm going to be on the phone for eight hours. But, you know, I think um, filtering the noise and prioritizing is really what helps people sort of separate and get to the top. But I think sort of holistically, really, that that communication and relationship management and teamwork um, was was a big part of, and, and continues to be a great part of that organization's success. No, absolutely. And you were certainly a big part of, you know, a lot of the transformation from a, a WNBA perspective. And as you look back at your time there, what was your best memory with, with the league and the league office? 
Oh, man, I got to tell you, the, the WNBA finals um, in Minnesota in 2017. Um, so Minnesota just had this amazing sort of number of years where they were either champions or in the finals. And then, you know, and so they're coming off a not great year where they lost, I think, in the last shot in the last game or what have you against L.A. the year before. And so it all comes down to a game five in Minnesota. Um, the Target Center was being renovated, so they had to move it to the University of Minnesota. Um, that is not our favorite move at the league office. Um, it's not, the, yeah. it's not, not, ESPN, not ESPN's favorite move from a cabling standpoint and broadcast standpoint. But um, I don't know if you've ever been in that building, Travis, but um, it's one of the last raised courts in the country. And it's sick. Like the bowl is almost below, like where you're sitting. If you're in like the first like eight rows, like you're almost looking at the players' feet. But it's yeah. like it, it's like they're levitating in you're the middle. You're on that stage. And then you got yeah, it's like a boxing ring. Like yeah. it's wild. And um, man, that place was jammed to the gills. I mean, just all the way up to the ceiling. Um, it was the it, it was probably the loudest, like most deafening event I've ever been to. And um, coming in. Not only was it two to two in terms of the, you know, because WME finals is five, five. best of yep. five, right? Um, it was down to like the same exact number of points per team. Like there were, there was no separation, right? Yep. And Minnesota ended up kind of breaking that game open and winning, you know, really pulling it out in the fourth quarter. And it was just amazing. It was so much fun. And, you know, Minnesota is one of the, one of the sort of few teams that have a, a female head coach. So it was really cool to see Cheryl Reeve and, and her whole group win. And, uh, Boy, that that just I wish the W could just bottle up that moment itself and sell it because the league would just be sold out all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, obviously hustle and here on 52 Weeks of Hustle, it, it's crazy how time flies. This is the, the 52nd week already of, of season one and, and certainly we'll be back to season two. But, you know, a lot of times I've had people ask, like, you know, why did you start the podcast? And as I kicked it off, it's, it's one of the opportunity to give back. And you know, I know, Ann, when, when you and I caught up several weeks ago and we were talking about this, and that was one of the first things you said, like, oh, I'd love it. And you're like, I'm getting reached out on LinkedIn a lot. Like, I love helping people and being successful. And so throughout your career, you've always been willing to help and, and certainly have helped pave the way for many successful individuals and certainly females in the sports industry. Why is it always important for you to give back? Well, gosh, I mean, this industry is so relational. Like if people don't get out and start establishing relationships um, and a network within it, then it's really hard for them to succeed. So I certainly understand the the greater role I could play um, in helping people. But look, there's a lot of people who, who want to be in this business. There's a ton of people who graduate from sports masters and, you know, sports yeah. management degrees every, every year. And, and, um, you know, it's kind of like the NFL, right? How many, how many college players are getting down to like working, you know, right. on a team. And so, um, I just think like having the opportunity to reach, reach down and help people in. And, you know, there's a lot of hardworking, passionate people who are great teammates and, just kind of help to get up and running. And I'm, I'm so, so grateful to all of the people who have helped me and continue to help me. Um, so, you know, I really wanted to come full circle and, and get really great people into this business. Well, on behalf of everyone, again, thank you. And, and so, Ian, you, you grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and as your dad worked for the Navy, and I'm sure that helped build your work ethic. And then you went on to Princeton and received a degree in, and wait for this, ecology and evolutionary biology. 
Um, again, I, I didn't go to Harvard by any means, certainly not Princeton, but where did sports come into that equation? Yeah, well, you know, it was because of my dad that we were in Annapolis of his work with the Navy, but my mom um, was a math teacher, so a lot of discipline and prep comes from, from yep. being a high school math teacher in the Anne Arundel County Public Schools. But the other thing is, like, I'm sort of, I'm one of those folks who's actually more inspired by my mom as an athlete. Um, my mom was an equestrian, so I actually grew okay. up riding horses. I shouldn't say was, my mom still competes. Um, so I, um, I grew up riding horses. We had a small farm um, with two horses in, in Annapolis. So um, I did equestrian for years and then I got into field hockey and lacrosse and, you know, as one does in Annapolis, you play lacrosse. It's like our, yeah. you know, our sport. The go-to, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, the go-to. And I ended up being good enough at both to have opportunities to play at Princeton. And then I wound up um, dropping out of the field hockey preseason. I hurt my back. And so I ended up just playing lacrosse from there. And, you know, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. And when I finished my, my time there, I was like, you know what? I just love sports so much. I'm going to miss lacrosse so much. I'm just going to try. I'm going to try like one year to yeah. work in the sports industry. And I think that was 22 years ago now. So uh, It worked out for you. Yeah, it worked out okay. Worked out okay. And that was that was with the Washington Freedom, right? The women's professional soccer team. Yeah, I got into that. You know, I had started by my started my career by volunteering at the Women's World Cup in '99, and so um, when it was in DC, so um, it was a lot of fun to then join the the pro league that was born yep. out of the success that that tournament had in the U.S. and um, you know, all of us who worked there, man, we just called it the greatest job we ever had. Like we didn't know what we were doing. And we were just yep. running hard, trying to make it happen. And there was so much enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, we got to work with Mia Hamm at the time. She was the most famous female athlete in the world. This was yep. sort of before Serena really came on the scene. And, um, Abby Wambach was like this young rookie on our team who, you know, she was just trying to make the U.S. team, which like, is yeah. so hard, you know, and to see kind of what those guys have gone on to do and and what other folks I worked with have gone on to do. It's just it was a lot of it was just a lot of fun. I don't know. No, absolutely. To and to your point, it certainly worked out for you. And, you know, even as, as you were going throughout your career, you know, a lot of times the question is, is. You know, should I go back to school? Should I go back right away? Should I go back later? And you went on later to receive your MBA at Stanford University at the, the Graduate School of Business. And so what's your advice for listeners as far as going back to school? Yeah, I mean, this one's a hard question. I get it a lot, too. And, um, you know, I understand not everybody gets to go to Stanford, right? And so, like, just kind of yep. stepping back and, like, thinking about one's options. Um for me, I wanted to go to business school because, you know, I had a science undergrad and I hadn't studied a lot of the core functions of running a business, you know, management and finance and whatnot. So for me, I was like, gosh, I'm going to run a company like I really need some exposure there. And then um, I thought about a sports management degree. There were far, far less of them, you know, in 2003 than there are today. So I didn't really factor that much in my decision. Um, I guess I thought um, at some point maybe I'd want to get in like a different industry. And I thought the MBA would translate. Yep. So that was my calculus. I mean, look, the other thing is just to be real about it, you know, Washington Freedom was in the now defunct. WSA and I could see like the defunctness coming. And so, coming yeah. so it was like my fallback plan to go to business school. Yep. So, cause I was like, I don't know what I would do otherwise. So like my world all converged and like, you know, I just got super lucky in getting into Stanford. Um, you know, today, if I was a young student today, listening to this podcast and thinking about going back to school or someone early career, like, boy, I'd think about it carefully because the cost of the degrees has risen so much. Um, and, you know, I self-financed mine and I think right. a lot of our listeners would probably self-finance and it yep. took me 10 years to pay it off. Yeah, it takes and a so, while. 
Yeah, it takes a while. So you really got to be thoughtful about why you're going, what you hope to get from it, and then really thoughtful about weighing sort of the business skills versus the sports management. No, absolutely. Well, and this has certainly been great. You, you've obviously had a tremendous and, and illustrious career in the sports business, and certainly we're, we're all excited to, to see what comes of, of LA 28. But to close that out, I like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for this? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So if, if you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Oh, I'm pretty committed to athleisure, I think. Nice. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. If a movie was made about your life, and we obviously just went through it over the last you know, 40 minutes, who would you want to play you? Well, you know, one of the better movies I've seen recently is Molly's Game about high stakes poker. I don't know if you've seen it. But, I have not. Uh, oh, it's good. It's on Netflix. Um, and it's about a woman who started a high stakes poker ring in L.A. and then spread it to New York and, and then um, got taken down by the feds. That part is not going to be in my story. But Jessica, <laughs> Jessica Chastain, who plays Molly, I think I think she'd be good at um, sort of going through all the ups and downs. of The good Ann Rodriguez. <laughs> What's the last thing you've completed on your bucket list? Oh, man. Well, I was hoping it was going to be Tokyo 2020, but maybe I'll, maybe <laughs> yeah. I'll get a chance this year. Um, we'll see. But, um, you know, look, I do um, I do trips with my mom and I do trips with my brother. And so the last trip I did with my mom, we actually went to the Olympic qualifying and equestrian down in Florida in Wellington. Okay. Um, so we did that in, awesome. in, in February of, of 20. So that was really fun. I'm hoping to kind of get, get back on my – Get on back my to normalcy. Yeah. Well, and to close it out, what are three key takeaways you would give every listener to be in your shoes one day? Well, look, you can't have a career without your health. And, you know, it's easy to get so committed and absorbed by all these events that you don't do all the things you need to take care of yourself. So you got to take care of your health first and foremost. Otherwise, you don't have a career. Um, I've worked really hard to find ways to be financially independent and take money out of decision making and make it about, you know, what do I want to do? Um, so be, you know, strive to be financially independent. And then I think the last thing I would say is you got to really understand, um, you know, we wake up every day in this country with more choice than almost any other country in the world. And you got to really embrace the power of choice that you have. And when you frame the steps in your career and in your life as choices that you've made, you one, I mean, it's just this amazing sense of empowerment and ownership. And two, um, I think it just helps you make better decisions, right? I choose to versus I have to. No, absolutely. And what a way to, to end, you know, the first season of 52 Weeks of Hustle, you know, to be honest, as I think back in my head, I, I'm not sure if, if any of those three were kind of takeaways that have been provided, uh, which has been the unique part of 52 Weeks of Hustle. But you're absolutely right. You've got to focus on your health, focus on, you know, you, you have you have the choice and you, know, you got to make those wisely. And, and I love that the financial independence. So you're not just chasing money. Um, so, again, and thank you so much. Always a pleasure talking to you. And I certainly appreciate your time and expertise. Oh, gosh, it was so much fun being here, and thanks for doing this. Really appreciate everything you're doing for the sports community. Again, this is Travis Apple, and thank you for listening to the last episode of Season 1 of 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with Season 2, Episode 1. Please be sure to follow the podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so follow us at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.